Hey, I'm Steph, and this is Not Today. Hello, and welcome. It's February, and you know what that means? It's still winter, but... Fret not, because the groundhog said that we're going to have an early spring. (laughs) I always find it so funny that we rely on a groundhog to let us know if it's going to be an early spring or not, or whatever. I don't know if it's only a U.S. thing. If any other country worships a groundhog to let them know when spring is coming or any other animal, let me know, because that's silly. But hey, I'll take good news where I can get it. Spring's coming early, folks. You heard it here. Second, probably. But (laughs) still. You know what February also means? It means that our next bonus episode will be dropping soon. When this episode comes out, I believe our bonus episode will be coming out next week. But why don't I let you know what's in store? Because it is truly a crazy story. So for our bonus episode, I'm going to be talking about Tanya Ryder. Tanya disappeared and was reported missing by her husband. And after suspicion fell on him, Tanya was found alive eight days later in her overturned car in a ravine. This one is so crazy because it is like a wild goose chase from start to finish for her husband, Tom. He is losing his mind because he knows that his wife is missing and nobody will take him seriously. But as bad as it was for Tom, it was 10 times worse for Tanya. It's definitely an intense one. So that will be coming out on Patreon next week. But if you would like access to a bunch of bonus episodes, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. I believe this is our 24th bonus episode, so there is plenty to listen to over there. But anyway, shameless self-plug over. Why don't we get started with this week's episode? We're going to be heading down to Prairie Village, Kansas on September 8th, 2010. It started out as a normal day at the office, but 44-year-old Marty Hill had missed her 10 a.m. morning meeting. Jan Schul, Marty's coworker, noticed that she wasn't there, which was extremely unusual for her. Marty was always very dependable and reliable. Jan described her as a big bunch of dynamite in a little bitty package. She said she weighs 97 pounds soaking wet, but she gets stuff done. Quite the description. Marty adored everything about her job. She was a graphic artist for an apparel company. She adored her coworkers, and they loved her back. They described her as being a hard worker, she was good-hearted, and an outgoing, fun person. Marty also rarely ever missed a day of work, and it was a very tight-knit group, so her coworkers definitely noticed her absence. After their morning meeting, one of her coworkers, Stephanie Schiebler, asked where Marty was, and she was told they weren't sure. So Stephanie sent her a quick text to check up on her. And when Marty didn't reply to those text messages, Stephanie called Marty a few times, but still got no response. That's when Stephanie knew something was wrong, because Marty wouldn't just miss work and ignore her texts and calls. That was very unlike her friend. There was a real sense of concern around the whole office because nobody could get a hold of her. People were brought to tears at the idea of something happening to their friend. Which really says a lot about who Marty was as a person, because if she doesn't show up to the morning meeting and doesn't answer her texts and calls, everyone realizes that that's a strange thing for her, and they're very concerned because they really want her to stick around. And if something happened to her, God forbid, they would be devastated. So at around 11.30 a.m., Marty's boss, Tom, decided he would drive by her house to see if her car was there or if anything just looked off in general. 
When he arrived, Marty's car had been parked in the driveway, so he walked up and rang the doorbell. He wasn't sure if the doorbell was connected or not because he hadn't heard anything, so he knocked really loudly on the door, but still got no answer. Tom got back into his car and called the office, which is when he told his coworkers that Marty's house seemed eerily empty, and he believed it was time that they called the police for a wellness check, because like I said, her car was in the driveway, but something was clearly off. Marty's neighborhood was a very quiet residential area. It was pretty safe, and the police didn't often get calls for that area. Bill Baldwin of the Prairie Village Police Department responded to the call, and when he walked up to Marty's home, he noticed that her door had been closed, but it wasn't locked. He opened up the door and peered inside as he yelled in that it was the police department and Marty, are you home? As he peered in, he noticed what seemed to be a woman's purse on the table in her dining room. Bill took that as a bad sign, since he said his wife never went anywhere without her purse. So seeing that, he had a pretty bad feeling that Marty was inside somewhere and was unable to answer him. As he looked around the first floor and upstairs of the house, he didn't find anything that would have indicated any kind of struggle. So he made his way downstairs into the basement. As he walked down and got to the very last two or three steps from the bottom, he saw a person lying on the ground of the basement in a fetal position, covered head to toe in blood, and surrounding this person was a very large pool of blood on the floor. As we can all guess, it was Marty. And thankfully, she was still breathing, although her breaths were very labored. Bill asked Marty who had done this to her, but she wasn't able to speak. He tried multiple times to get her to speak, even though she wasn't doing well, because he thought this might be her dying declaration and could be the difference between finding who did this to her and not. He also called for an ambulance because if Marty had any shot of living, she needed help immediately. She was taken to St. Luke's Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, and when she arrived, trauma surgeon Dr. Harry Wilkins said he couldn't tell if the person being rolled in was a man or a woman, if she was young or old, or what race she was. She was covered in dried blood, and her head was so swollen you couldn't make out her facial features. Marty appeared to be a lifeless body at that point, so Dr. Wilkinson's first job was to figure out if she was even still alive, because he wasn't sure. What he and the other doctors and nurses found was the major veins, skin, and muscle on the left side of her neck had been completely cut through. Whoever had attacked Marty had slit her throat multiple times, and her artery had actually had a couple of scrapes on it. So she was literally millimeters away from having her artery cut and bleeding out. For the next hour and a half, the medical team had to meticulously clean and put back together all of Marty's injuries. And as they worked, Dr. Wilkins saw a lot of bruises and swelling to her face, which made him very concerned because she had clearly sustained a pretty traumatic head injury, which can be very serious. And it looked serious. Marty's head was swollen like a balloon. Her eyes were swollen shut. Her whole head had tripled in size. It was not looking good. And concussions can look fine initially, but can lead to more swelling and can cause death within 24 to 72 hours if it's severe enough. And the doctor was thinking that it looked severe enough to potentially kill her. 
The injuries she suffered were incredibly extensive. She had several fractures to her skull and face, several six-inch long knife wounds in her neck that were a quarter inch deep, as well as cuts on her face and a severe concussion and severe brain swelling. Marty's mother picked up her daughter Mackenzie and took her to the hospital once they had heard what had happened. Marty was being kept in the ICU, which was where they took Mackenzie and her grandmother once they got there, but they had no idea what had even happened at that point. So when Mackenzie finally saw her mother, it was a massive shock. Like I said, Marty's swelling made her unrecognizable, so the only thing her daughter could recognize were her mother's arms, legs, and hands. Not being able to recognize your own mother or daughter's face was extremely jarring to both Mackenzie and her grandmother. That must have been such a terrifying experience for them because one minute they're living their life as normal and the next they're in the hospital and they can't even recognize a person that is so important to them. They also had no idea who had done this or if Marty was going to live. It was a very bad situation. Things were still very touch and go. Doctors were surprised that Marty had even made it as long as she did with the injuries she had sustained. In the medical field, there are five levels of trauma, with level one being the worst. At level one, the injured patient's chance of survival is estimated at 20% to 25%, and Marty was a level one trauma patient. Mackenzie started thinking about all the fights she had ever had with her mother. And seeing her like that, she felt terrible for anything she had ever said to her mom. It was a big wake-up call because she wished she could just take it all back. She got really close to her mom and told her she'd never be mean to her ever again. You gotta grow up real fast in a situation like that because almost every teenager fights with their parents. But I can only imagine when you're faced with life and death, all of the fights you've ever had seem so silly and you can really recognize what is truly important and that is your loved ones. Detective Luke Roth of Prairie Village PD said they were trying to figure out a motive for this brutal attack. They noticed that Marty's clothes appeared to be intact, her bra was intact, which basically meant that there was no sign of sexual assault, which of course is a great sign. But still, she was brutally attacked and they had no reason for it. Detective Roth went to the hospital to talk with Marty's mother to find out if she could assist them with their investigation. Investigators asked her if she knew of anyone that may have wanted to harm Marty. And Marty's mother told them, no, she didn't think so. She had an ex-husband, Steve Hill, who she communicated regularly with. And to her mother's knowledge, Marty wasn't dating anyone. She was a workaholic and she rarely left the house. If she wasn't working, she was home. Investigators had very little to go on at that point, but Marty was still unable to communicate. They didn't know who Marty may have been in contact with that day, so their first thought was to check up on her ex-husband, Steve. The logical next step, because in many cases like this, the ex had something to do with it. Not necessarily in this case, but they had to make sure. Detective Roth asked Mackenzie a lot about her parents, if they got along, if they fought a lot, and Mackenzie, who knew exactly what they were asking her, told them that her dad would never do this to anybody, let alone her mother, and she had no idea who could have done this. Detective Jason Wakefield went to Steve's house to interview him that night. He was very cooperative, he invited the detectives into the house, gave them a full rundown of what he did that day, and he told them about his history with Marty. They had gone through some rough times, but he loved her and he would never hurt her. He wanted to know who would hurt her just as badly as they did. 
And that was when it became very difficult for them because at that point, they kind of had to rule out Steve. They were able to verify where he was and he was no longer a potential suspect. And that meant they had nothing to go on. They were back at square one, which is never where you want to be in a situation like this. Mackenzie and her dad also had a lot of conversations, just the two of them, to try to figure out who may have wanted to hurt Marty, but they really couldn't think of anyone. Marty was loved by everyone in her life. But Mackenzie remembered that someone had broken into her grandmother's house a few days before, so they wondered if the two might be connected in some way, and whoever that was was after their family. It seemed pretty far-fetched, but other than that, they had no idea. Marty's mom, Shirley, said they weren't sure what was going to happen with Marty. She was still in terrible condition. As she lay in her hospital bed, she had bandages over her neck wounds so her family couldn't see them, but her eyes were still swollen shut, which would occasionally have a tear of blood drip from them. Her family knew that she was fighting to stay alive. There were a lot of fears among Marty's co-workers because they wondered who could have done something like this and if potentially someone from work had done it. So everyone started looking over their shoulder as they would leave the office for the night. The doctor said the medical staff also felt that way too. It was just very jarring to know that someone in your community did this, and it was scary to know that they might do it again, potentially with no motive at all. Prairieville detectives went to Marty's office to question her co-workers to try to work out her routine. Marty's mother told the investigators that she had recently had some work done on her house from the company B&J Construction, and she had referred them to Marty. The supervisor of that company was a man named Brian, and he seemed to be a nice guy. Brian had done a lot of work at Shirley's house, so he had spent a lot of time there. She felt like he was a nice guy, a family man, and he did really good work, which was why she suggested Marty use them for work she needed done on her house in the first place. When the police initially contacted Brian, they had a quick phone call with him. But at that time, they didn't even know his last name. But after hanging up, Brian actually called them back to tell them that his last name was Pennington. Strange move, but I guess if you have nothing to hide, they can know your last name. Brian Pennington was 26 years old at the time and lived in Leeton, Missouri, which was about an hour and a half from Kansas City metro area. September 10th, two nights after the attack, Detective Jason Wakefield and his partner decided to go to Brian's home to ask him a few questions. They arrived at his house a little after 9 p.m., and when they pulled up, they saw that it was a very dark, secluded area. But when they knocked on the door, they were invited into Brian's house, and the detectives followed Brian into his kitchen. He was very polite and cooperative with them, which, of course, is what you want to see and he told them that he had worked on Marty's house for about three or four days. They asked him what he thought when he heard Marty had been attacked, and he told them that he didn't know what to think because she was a very decent lady. During their conversation, the detectives noticed that Brian had several scratches on the left side of his face. When they asked him about the scratches on his face, he told them that it was from his pit bull. He claimed that as he bent down to unhook his dog's chain, she jumped up and scratched him in the face. But when the detectives looked at the scratches on his face, they didn't seem to be consistent with what a dog would do. They definitely felt like Brian was keeping something from them. And when they asked him if he had attacked Marty, he said he didn't. 
And the way he was trying to prove it to them was he kept stressing to the detectives that he was going through a lot of financial difficulties and there was no way he could have committed this crime due to the fact he didn't have money for gas. They talked to Brian's wife, Jessica, as well to see if Brian had been home on the morning of the attack. And she told them that Brian had finished the job at Marty's home last month and he had been home with her for the past two weeks. Both night and day, he hadn't left for two whole weeks. So she said there was no way he could have been responsible for the attack that happened two days prior. They also asked Jessica about the scratches on Brian's face, and her response was, they're from the dog, I swear. That's an interesting way to put that. They're from the dog, I swear. Kind of sounds like you're lying. If you left it at, they're from the dog, that's less incriminating, I feel like, but once you throw on the I swear, it immediately says, I'm lying. And unsurprisingly, the detectives did not believe Jessica. They said she seemed very naive. She was only about 20 years old at the time, and the couple had two young children. So they felt like Jessica would have said anything possible to help protect her husband and keep him around, which definitely makes sense. Before the detectives left, they asked Brian if he had any clothes that had blood on them in his house. He immediately told them he didn't, which was when the cops asked if they could go through his dirty clothes just to check, and he told them they could. So the detectives saw a hamper in the bathroom, and when he started pulling the clothes out, he found a pair of jeans at the bottom of the pile, and when he pulled them out, he saw that they were covered in dark red stains. Most of the stains were at the knees and toward the bottom of the pants. They asked Brian what was on his pants, and he told them that he thought it was grease, but he wasn't sure. They said, not blood though, right? And he said, no. Such an interesting interaction to me, because it really is one of those ask and you shall receive moments. Like, good work on the detective's part, because who would think that if you ask someone, hey, do you have any bloody clothes in your house? And they say no, and you say, hey, can I go look around for them? If they have bloody clothes, don't you think they would say no? <laughs> don't look around my dirty clothes? It's kind of an odd request to begin with, even if you didn't have bloody clothes. So it wouldn't be crazy for a person to be like, I would prefer if you didn't look through my clothes because they're my dirty clothes and that's kind of nasty. But I guess Brian was so focused on like, seem innocent, seem innocent, that he was like, yeah, of course, you can go fish through my hamper in the bathroom. <laughs> like... And then, of course, because they're doing that, they come upon bloody clothes. I just wonder what was going through his mind at that moment. How did you think that one was going to go? You thought they were going to see the bloody clothes and be like, oh, we're not going to double check on this one. I think that's exactly what he thought. But even though the detectives had found the bloody jeans in the hamper or what looked like bloody jeans in the hamper, they still weren't technically allowed to just take them. They had to get his permission. So... They were finally feeling like they might have something, but they also knew they had to continue being very polite and not make any sudden movements, basically. So when they asked if they could take the pants, Brian said they could. And that was that. They even had Brian sign a written consent form that they could take his jeans, his shoes, DNA swabs, and photos of the scratches on his face. Those are bold moves for someone who might not want the police to have his DNA or photos of the scratches on his face or his jeans or his shoes, because that could lead to his arrest and conviction. But uh, he was like, no, take them. It's fine. Quite the bluff. 
The police were very surprised that they were getting that amount of cooperation from Brian, but it seemed like he just didn't expect them to follow through with what he was giving them. He thought the detectives would just believe what he was saying because he and his wife had said the same thing and he was being very cooperative. So I guess he was trying to seem as innocent as possible, but that kind of backfired in a big way. So after leaving Brian's house, Detective Wakefield went directly to the crime lab at around 11 p.m. to run some tests because of course they did. They just got bloody jeans. Within 20 minutes of being at the crime lab, they were told that the stains on the jeans tested positive for human blood. So there you go. It's not grease or something. Also, I just wanted to point out because I forgot to mention it early when they asked what was on the jeans in the first place and he said, Greece, I think. I don't know. That's kind of funny because you would probably know what's on your jeans. Even if you're like working with a ton of stuff, you probably have a pretty good idea what's on your jeans. And of course he knew it was blood. Of course he did. But he was just putting on the best poker face that he had in his arsenal. <laughs> That's not a saying. You know what I mean. He was trying to bluff. So the detectives now know that what is on the pants is confirmed human blood. They would have to wait a couple more days before they would know who the blood belonged to, but it was definitely human blood and not grease. The detectives didn't tell anyone about what they had found. They were told that Marty would be able to talk to them eventually, and they didn't want to potentially jeopardize the investigation by giving Marty false ideas. They wanted anything Marty said to them to come directly from her and not from something they had suspicions about. And they didn't have to wait long because the morning after leaving Brian Pennington's house, the detectives received a call informing them that Marty was talking at the hospital. Marty said she doesn't remember the first few days that she was in the hospital or feeling any pain, but she does remember feeling like she had too much medicine in her and that she didn't feel good. And that's not surprising because she had a lot of really terrible injuries. I think it's honestly great that she doesn't remember feeling pain or the first few days in the hospital because that would have been highly traumatic. But now that she was conscious and able to speak, everything that had happened to her started flooding back. She had no question in her mind. She knew who had done this to her. Shirley remembered the first day Marty began speaking because she said Mackenzie walked into her hospital room and the doctor told her that Marty had spoken. So Shirley asked her if she remembered who had done this to her, and Marty immediately said, Brian. When detectives arrived at the hospital, she told them exactly what happened to her. On the day of the attack, Marty had gotten up early and heard a knock at her front door. When she looked out the window, she saw that it was Brian Pennington. She had hired Brian to do some work on her house, but that had already been completed about a month prior, and she didn't really understand why he would have been at her house that morning. Marty hadn't set up any meeting with Brian, and she also knew that he lived over an hour away from her home. It was also odd that he was there that early, and that he hadn't called first. But she justified him being there because she figured he must have just been working in the area and was wondering if she had more work to be done. Looking back on the situation after the fact, Marty realized that Brian had never arrived early, even when he was working on her house. So she did have an uneasy feeling seeing him there at that time, but she ignored that gut feeling because she never wanted to come off as being rude. And that is such a tough situation because I get it. It's someone who you like kind of know, even though you have a weird feeling about it, you're kind of disarmed because... You don't want to come off as rude and you think that they're fine, even though somewhere deep down 
your body is telling you, hey, don't open that door, you just ignore it because that's the polite thing to do. I think a lot of people in her situation would have done exactly what she did. So Marty went to the door and let him in. They had a brief conversation and Brian told her that he remembered something in the basement that he believed she might want work on. So the two of them started walking to the basement. Initially, this didn't seem like a very odd request because Marty was getting ready to put her house on the market. So Marty was ahead of him, leading him down to the basement, and she remembered trying to make small talk with him, but as they walked, she recalled Brian got really quiet for some reason. He didn't acknowledge what she was saying at all, which was strange. And as they walked down the stairs, Marty got a really odd feeling. Once she had made it to the bottom two stairs, Brian grabbed her throat. Brian's grasp on her throat was so tight and strong, she frantically asked him what he was doing, but he was silent. He never said a word to her after that. Marty continued to scream out, but as it went on, her voice got softer and softer until she physically couldn't speak, and she lost consciousness. For a moment, she came to and tried to fight back, grabbing at Brian. She told him to get out of her house and again asked him, what are you doing, before she lost consciousness again. And that was all she remembered before waking up in the hospital. Detectives were certain that Brian Pennington was responsible for Marty's attack because they hadn't told Marty about their trip to his house, and she shared that information on her own. So that was enough. But what was even more damning was the blood on Brian's jeans were confirmed to be a match with Marty. They definitely had enough for an arrest warrant. So on Monday, September 13th, five days after the attack, they went back to Brian's house and found him driving down the road with his wife. He had been laid down in the passenger seat and his wife was driving, so they stopped the car and arrested him. And they were able to hold him on a million dollar bail. He showed no signs of being upset or having any anger. He didn't even show any emotion. When news got back to Sherry Hill, Marty's mom, that the police had arrested Brian Pennington, she almost fell over. She was extremely emotional because she was the one who had referred Brian to Marty in the first place, and she had worked with him for two years before that. She knew his wife, she knew his kids, and she really felt like she knew Brian and that he was a safe person. So hearing that the police had enough on him to arrest him made the whole thing very real to her that it was for sure Brian. She felt a little responsible for what had happened to her daughter, even though it wasn't her fault at all. But it was definitely jarring that it had been a person she thought she knew. And there was seemingly no motive. That was what was so crazy about this case is that nobody really knows why Brian Pennington attacked Marty. He came to her house unprompted early in the morning, led her down to the basement and immediately attacked her, strangling her, cutting her throat and beating her head in, basically. He did not expect her to survive that attack. And honestly, if she didn't, he probably never would have been caught. Or, I mean, maybe not never, but potentially he may not have been caught because Marty wouldn't have been able to confirm that it was, in fact, Brian Pennington. I guess the police did go to his house and find the bloody jeans and, you know, kind of have that on him before Marty remembered. But still, it was just such a random, senseless crime that putting the dots together in something like this is really difficult to do. And that's what he was banking on. He's just a person who wanted to kill people, which is one of the most scary things a person can be. No rhyme or reason, I would just like to kill someone. And the detectives did feel like Brian was an evil person. 
Because not only did he strangle Marty, he then beat her head into the concrete floor, which caused multiple facial fractures. And as if that wasn't enough, he then cut her throat three times, leaving her to die in her basement that morning. Thankfully, Marty had no memory of that trauma, but that's an unbelievable amount of damage to cause to a person who was already unconscious and gave you no reason to attack them. He wasn't expecting Marty to live through that, so Brian Pennington was surprised when the detectives initially arrived at his door and told them that she had lived. He wasn't concerned about giving the police his name or DNA or anything like that because he really didn't think he would be caught. Meanwhile, Marty had been in the hospital for about a week at that point. Her brain was still in shock. It was around that time that Marty had to start working with Dr. Kim Poker to start her rehab. She could walk, but she was still struggling a lot. She had to have a really wide stance as she walked, and she couldn't put her feet together to stand or she would fall over. She had issues with her vision, her hearing, her memory, processing things, and she would change topics really quickly. So she had a long way to go in her recovery. And the attack was really hard on Marty's kids, especially her son, Stephen. Stephen was really protective. He flew to Kansas from Houston immediately after he had heard what had happened, and he took it really hard. He was actually the one who cleaned the blood off of the floor in Marty's basement because he didn't want anyone to have to see the blood all over the place. And it was also extremely difficult for Mackenzie. She spent her 16th birthday in the hospital with her mom. And when her mom handed her a card, her handwriting looked like a child's would. That really hit Mackenzie because she started to realize that her mother had to kind of start over in her recovery. Marty's sister Monica said that Mackenzie played a huge role in Marty's recovery, though. Having her daughter there gave Marty a purpose. She could feel like a mother and like she had a responsibility to recover. So that was huge for her. After Marty had finally left the hospital, she went to stay with her mother, which was when she started dealing with the emotional trauma from the attack. She had to process the fact that Brian seemed completely normal and fine, but could be a very violent and evil person. It was all very confusing. So Brian Pennington was arrested for attempted first-degree murder. Vanessa Reebley was the prosecutor on the case, and she wanted to put Brian away for as long as she possibly could. The strongest evidence they had was the DNA evidence, Marty's blood on Brian's jeans and shoes. They also had the facial scratches that he said were from his pit bull. The issue they were facing was they couldn't find a motive for the attack. There was no theft that had occurred during the attack, and she had money laying out in her house. Her purse was there as well, but he didn't take it. There was no sexual assault. They hadn't even spoken since the work Brian had done on Marty's house in late August. But when investigators looked into Brian Pennington further, they found that he had a prior police record. He had over 60 contacts with law enforcement officers. He was involved in several domestic violence situations where he caused injury to the wives he had, to girlfriends. So battering women wasn't new for Brian Pennington. He was just a monster. His current wife, Jessica Pennington, was very important to the case because she had initially given Brian an alibi when they were questioned by detectives. She said he had been home with her during the time of the attack, and that was going to be difficult to get around in front of a jury. But first, they had to get through a preliminary hearing to decide if they were even going to go to court in the first place. The night before the preliminary hearing, Marty was very nervous about seeing Brian. 
She was also nervous about what she would say, what her attorneys would ask her. It was all very overwhelming. The pressure was huge because it was law enforcement's and the prosecution's belief that Brian Pennington was a very dangerous person, and if they failed at the preliminary hearing, he would be released. Vanessa Reebly was very concerned about Marty's physical health as well, because at the time of the hearing, she was still having a lot of trouble walking and sitting in a chair, and she was worried that she would cause more emotional harm to Marty through their aggressive prosecution style. Her other concern was Marty's memory. They knew if she could identify Brian as her attacker, they could get a conviction. But with all of the injuries that she had sustained, Vanessa wasn't sure that Marty would be able to do that. She was still very much going through her recovery. May 17th, 2011 was the hearing. Brian was brought in and seated to the far right of the courtroom. And on his side, he had no one, not even his mother or his wife. He stared straight ahead the entire time until Marty walked in the door. The only time he moved his head from straight forward was when she walked in. Marty's sister said it looked like he had just seen a ghost when Marty came into the room. When Marty first walked into the courtroom, she was moving very slowly and was kind of hunched over, and the prosecution was very worried she wouldn't be able to make it through the hearing. Vanessa Reebly knew how nervous Marty had been, so she instructed Marty to only focus on her and not look at anyone else, since the two of them were just going to be having a conversation. But as Marty spoke, she could see Brian out of the corner of her eye, looking at her. And it was still very hard to process in the courtroom because Marty still couldn't understand how this person who came to work for her, who she thought she knew, could do something like that. The entire time, Brian showed absolutely no emotion. He was very detached from the situation, and it was Vanessa's opinion that it didn't bother him that he had almost killed a woman. She said the defendants that detach and show no emotion are the ones that frighten her the most. And that makes sense, because someone who's committing a crime of passion is still terrifying, and that's still a really crazy thing to do, but someone who has no motive and shows no emotion and just is a monster is way scarier. So I definitely agree with Vanessa. Vanessa said she held her breath until Marty had identified Brian as the man who attacked her and was extremely relieved when she was able to do it. Vanessa smiled at Marty because she wanted her to know that she had done a good job. The next issue of concern was Jessica Pennington. Vanessa thought she was going to be a very hostile witness and would testify on his behalf, telling the jury that he was home the whole time. But the detectives had been able to get Jessica alone, and they told her how important it was that she tell them the truth about where Brian had been. The key factor for Jessica was learning how badly Marty had actually been beaten and how close to death she had gotten. Once she learned the extent of Marty's injuries, she decided it was more important to tell the truth than it was to protect Brian. And that is a very good conclusion made by Jessica, because protecting that piece of shit would be a mistake. Jessica broke down and admitted to them that she had initially lied and that her husband had not been home with her at the time of the attack. It was also during that interview that detectives learned that Jessica had also been attacked by her husband on numerous occasions. She had been assaulted and threatened many times. So it's not surprising that Jessica lied for him in the first place because she was also being abused. She was probably terrified of the man. But I'm extremely glad that she was able to get past that fear and do the right thing because she could have made it really difficult for the prosecution if she, if she was super set in stone on his alibi. 
But in the end, Jessica became one of the best witnesses for the prosecution, which was a shock. At the end of the preliminary hearing, the judge ruled that there had been enough evidence to take this case to trial. After that, it became clear through Brian's defense counsel that they were looking for a deal, but the prosecution wanted him to be put away as long as possible. They could either go through a jury trial and try for 38 years, or they could go with a plea and get less than that. A key factor in that decision was Marty. She still had physical and mental issues that she was dealing with, and Vanessa believed that Marty wanted to work out a deal. Because if she did, she wouldn't have to go to court and be a witness and continue living this nightmare. Vanessa had called Marty and told her it was hard enough to have 12 people decide what to get for lunch, let alone deciding on how to convict someone. Basically saying, you have a much better chance of getting him put away for a long time if we just go with a plea. It took several months, but the prosecution and defense finally came to the agreement on 28 and a half years. That would mean Marty wouldn't have to testify, there would be no trial, and she could go back to living her life and not worry about Brian Pennington. Brian's sentencing was set for December 12, 2011 at the Johnson County Courthouse, and everyone expected it to be fast and painless. But when they got into the courtroom that day, Vanessa could tell by looking at Brian and his defense counsel that something seemed off. Brian and his defense counsel were not speaking to each other at all, and Brian looked angry. Then the prosecution was told Brian wanted to withdraw his plea, and he wanted to go to trial. And that was really bad news, but it would be left up to the judge. Vanessa felt like this was because Brian had six weeks to think about the plea deal before the sentencing. He would be agreeing to serve 28 and a half years in prison, but Brian himself hadn't even spent 28 years alive yet. He was 26 when he attacked Marty. So he would be in prison for longer than he had ever even been alive, and he couldn't get his mind around what that meant. Vanessa was upset because she had told Marty that her nightmare would finally be over that day, and now that might not be true. So the courtroom was filled with tension. It was full of Marty's friends and family members, many of whom had traveled miles and miles and spent a lot of money to be there. Marty's counsel was told that they would go into the courtroom with Brian and his defense counsel, and he would tell the judge his reasons to withdraw his plea. Brian told the judge that it was too much pressure and too much time, but the judge told him that those weren't sufficient reasons to withdraw his plea. So, sorry, Brian, but you're getting what you're getting. After that, they then moved on to the victim's impact statements and statements from Marty's family members. Mackenzie said she was almost excited to speak to Brian. She told him a lot, but it basically boiled down to this was something her family never should have had to live through, and even though he wasn't looking at her as she spoke, she knew he heard everything she was saying. She was glad she finally got to say something to him, and she finally felt power over him, which was a really good feeling considering what he had done to her mother and her family. Marty also faced Brian. She told him that she had been nothing but nice to him and asked him why he did that to her. But Brian just sat there with no response. The judge asked Brian if he had anything to say before he gave him his sentence, but Brian still said nothing. This was difficult for Marty's family because they wanted an explanation out of him, some kind of motive or anything that would point to this not being some random event, but he didn't give them that. 
Brian was sentenced to 28 and a half years. And at the end of the day, Marty felt like she had a really amazing team of people behind her. She had her friends, her family, the detectives were amazing, her lawyers were great, and she made it out alive. Mackenzie said she's extremely grateful for her mom's co-workers because they were the reason the police were able to find her in time and save her life. Mackenzie said they were her angels. However, her co-worker said that none of them consider themselves to be heroes in this. Marty is the true hero. She is the one who made it through and out of what she had gone through. Marty does still have her scars. She experiences tingling down her left side. She has numbness and tightness in her face, which is a constant reminder, but she has come a really long way. She's even started kickboxing, first as a way to push herself even further in her recovery, but now she just enjoys it. The emotional part of this is never going to fully go away for Marty. She still thinks about the attack a lot. But when reflecting back on the whole experience, Marty does not feel anger because she knows that anger will not get her anywhere. She still has a difficult time understanding the many questions surrounding how and why something like this could happen, and she wishes she could find out why Brian did what he did, but he's never responded to anyone. She has since made it her goal to help others know what to look for to avoid being placed in a similar situation to hers. She's made it her mission and passion to speak out and share her story. Doing so has been a positive force in her healing process because it has allowed her to turn something awful into something productive. And we love that. At first, she was inspired to speak in small groups in a casual atmosphere. It started with just her daughter's cheerleading squad. But the purpose was to inform senior girls who were getting ready to go off to college about safety and awareness. Her friends had also organized small groups of their daughters and asked her to speak. But since then, she has done a lot more. Marty has created a website to help women recover from traumatic events, and she's also written a book called Millimeter from Murder, The Anatomy of a Survivor, which isn't available yet, but it is on its way. She wrote on her website about her book, It's a 70,000-word memoir of my long and distressing recovery, the hunt for my would-be killer, and the redemption I found as a survivor and now advocate for women's safety and awareness. She's also worked with her kickboxing instructor, David DeBella, on organizing a self-defense class that emphasizes awareness and intuition and tips for increasing your knowledge of safety. So if you're interested in checking out Marty's website, it is martyhill.com, M-A-R-T-I-H-I-L-L.com. She's got her story as well as her book and resources for safety strategies. And I just think that's really cool. But that is the story of the survival of Marty Hill. It's such a terrifying one. Because like we've been talking about, Brian Pennington had no motive. He was just a really angry, evil man. And he targeted Marty for some reason. It's very strange, honestly, because he worked for two years with Marty's mother, and then he just randomly worked on her house for a three-day span, and then he decided that he was going to murder her in cold blood in her basement one morning. It just makes you wonder, like, how does a person like that come to be? Is that nature? Is that nurture? It's just such a cold-blooded, evil thing to do. And I don't think anyone who has a heart will understand his motives or his reasoning behind it, because it seems like he didn't have any. So I guess why even try to understand it? But it does sound like Marty has an incredible group of people around her, 
And she also sounds like an amazing person as well. Because from the very beginning, her coworkers were extremely concerned about her not being there and not answering her phone because she was so responsive and responsible and hardworking and just lovely to be around. So they knew immediately that something was wrong. And thank goodness they did, because if the police hadn't shown up like a few hours after the attack, like they did, Marty may not have survived. So I do understand why Mackenzie says that her coworkers are her angels, because good for them for knowing something was wrong and saying something and going as far as to call police for a wellness check, even though she hadn't been out of work for a few days and, you know, what it was just she hadn't gone to her 10 o'clock meeting. I feel like that says a lot about who Marty is as a person, that, that they were that concerned. But anyway, I wish nothing but the best for Marty and her family and her coworkers. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. Why don't we move on to a bit of a palate cleanser and I'll tell you something good that's happening in my life. My good thing is that I am taking a trip to LA and I'm really excited. I can't wait to see my friends and get out of the cold and and be somewhere where I can see blue in the sky because, oh my God, Michigan in January is just nonstop gray, which is not my favorite thing in the world. But, you know, winter is winter. And that's why I'm so excited about the groundhog saying that spring is coming, because I feel like I need it. Uh, And I'm sure we all do. But yeah, that's my good thing. Anyways, thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to hear all those bonus episodes I talked about and vote on stories you want to hear, head over to patreon.com slash nottodaypodcast. Get your merch while it's still hot at nottodaypodcast.myshopify.com. If you'd like to see pictures and posts of all the stories we talk about, check us out on Instagram at nottoday underscore podcast. If you or anyone you know has a story of survival that you'd like to share with us, send it to knowtodaypodcast at gmail.com. We have a TikTok that is not today podcast and a Twitter that is not today podcast, but the T on the end of podcast is a three because that makes sense. And just keep breathing. Yeah. 